He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even so we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask God's guidance and direction on the word. Our Father, we're thankful for all that you have given us in your word, all that you have revealed to us. The more we study, the more we see that there is to study. The more we learn, the more we come to understand how much more we must learn. As we study, it is we are impressed with how one part of Scripture complements and expands on another part of Scripture. And it seems like no matter how much we study, how much we dig, there's always more to learn, always more to understand and comprehend. Father, as we study today, may we be impressed with our new position in Christ, all that we have in Christ, the unity that all believers are to have in Christ, and understand the uniqueness of this in the body of Christ, in the church, the universal church composed of all believers of all time. Father, may we come to understand this is a high high privilege, a high position, and that it gives us a, a tremendous new identity in him. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to focus on Ephesians 2, 17 and 18. But before we do that, we need to review a little bit and bring out a few more things from the previous passage that we have been studying. The focal point here comes in the last verse that in this new body, together, Jew and Gentile, we have access or entry to the throne of God, access to heaven, access to God the Father by one spirit. There's not a distinction anymore between Jew and Gentile. Last time we looked at verses 14 through 16, one sentence in the Greek that focuses on one aspect of the peace that is accomplished in Christ's death. This is not a peace between uh, man and God. It is a peace between Jew and Gentile. We have to be reminded that ultimately there is only one race. There's the human race. We all descended from Noah and his three sons. Most people want to say we all descended from Adam, but remember everything got narrowed down uh, at the ark. We've all descended from Noah and his wife. 
and there's only one race. Now, today we hear so much talk about race and racism and anti-racism, and the sad thing that we see is a lot of pastors, a lot of theologians uh, getting on the wrong side of this issue because they fail to apply this passage to their understanding of race. Some of that is because a lot of believers have abused and misused the concept over the, over the years and over the centuries. But what this passage teaches us in this breakdown of a distinction between Jew and Gentile is that every believer, every believer, whether you're Caucasian, whether you're African, whether you're uh, Indian or Asian, no matter what your ethnic background may be, all of those distinctions are to be rendered somewhat irrelevant in terms of our relationship to one another because we are believers and we are in the body of Christ. Racism, for the believer, racism ultimately is putting your ethnic background, your cultural background, your subcultural background as being more important than our relationship with one another in Christ, in the body of Christ. And that's about the best definition of racism I can come up with for the believer. And sadly, there are many in this country who do not understand that, and they are using culture and ethnicity to create political divides and other divides that destroy the unity that is in the body of Christ. And that is a blasphemy against God, and it is making oneself an enemy of the cross. Because as we see in this passage, it is the cross that is the basis for our unity now in the body of Christ. In verse 14... We see the focus is on Christ and what he did. For he himself is our peace. We've gone through this showing that when Paul uses these pronouns, it's very important to understand his distinctions. When he says you, he's not talking to the Ephesian believers. He is talking to his audience as Gentiles. When he says we... Sometimes he means Jewish background believers who were the first saved from Acts chapter 2 until Acts chapter 10 when Peter took the gospel to Cornelius in Caesarea by the sea. There were only Jews who were in the body of Christ. They were the first ones to be saved. Then Gentiles are added. Now somebody may say, well, what about the Ethiopian eunuch? Well, he was a proselyte. He was, had gone to Jerusalem for uh, Passover and for Pentecost, so he is not counted as a Gentile, uh, as we see with, with uh, Cornelius. And then there are the Samaritans. Well, they're half Jewish and half Gentile, so they are uh, not counted as Gentiles. It is that distinction that's made in Acts 10 uh, in the Scripture that makes, uh, makes this unique. That's when Gentiles are added and... There is this unity now in the body of Christ. So here we read, He himself, Christ, is our peace. 
Now here, as I just said, when we see we are our in some places, it's talking about Jewish background believers during that first part. Now, with Jew and Gentile together, he, the hour refers to Jew and Gentile together in the body of Christ. We see the word together used back in verses 4, 5, and 6, that we have been made alive together. We have been raised together and seated together with Christ in the heavenlies. That together means Jew and Gentile together. Here it's the word both. He has made the both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. This section in verses 14 and 15 is about peace. He himself is our peace, and at the end it repeats this, that he has created in himself one new man from the two, that is from Jew and Gentile, with the result that he made peace. So this passage is talking about what he did, that he broke down that dividing wall, which is defined in verse 15 as the Mosaic law, the the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Uh, That's how he made peace. He abolished the law. And the reason he did it was twofold. So that, first, he might create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, And second, that he might reconcile them both. Now that they are uh, together, he's going to reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So these are the two purposes in verses 15, to create in himself one new man, and in verse 16, that he might then reconcile them both to God. So today we're going to wrap up with verse 16 and move on into 17 and 18. It states the second principle that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity that is the law. For we learned that from the previous verse. The verb here is apakatalaso which is one of the key verbs that's used for reconciliation. Reconciliation has the idea that harmony or peace is restored between two parties, two or more parties, where there has been a state of war, hostility, enmity. That is a favorite way that the uh, translators uh, translate the hostility here is through that word enmity. And so as we have seen, there is one barrier. There are actually two barriers in the passage. The first barrier is the law that is contained in, that is the commandments contained in ordinances. And so the law, the precepts of the law separated Jew and Gentile. Jews had to eat a special diet. Gentiles could not eat that diet. Uh, Jews had to keep uh, certain uh, laws of cleansing. Gentiles didn't have to do that. And so uh, Jews would not go into Gentile homes. Uh, uh, Gentiles would not be invited in unless they were a proselyte and they were would prepare themselves. So all these different stipulations in the law separated Jew from Gentile, but it is the cross that ended that. And what I want you to notice here in um, in this passage is that he does this in verse 16 
through the cross. Now look at the ways in which this is communicated. In verse 13, the last phrase, he's, we're brought near by the blood of Christ. Then in verse 16, the language is through the cross. Uses different prepositions in the Greek, which is interesting. I don't want to get off into the weeds on that. I spent two or three hours yesterday just reading through. Uh, there were, I think, 225 different verses that used these two prepositions in proximity to one another, trying to figure out what the distinctions were and what was being said. But we'll get to that. I'll summarize that in just a minute. It's by means of the blood of Christ, by his death, through the cross, that's the, it, really what we'll see here is that's the, the means, but it's more like that is the, that is the basis for what Christ did, for what, for his being able to bring us together. And then in, uh, verse 18, it's just summarized as through him. It is actually just referring to that work on the cross. The second barrier, the one that we're going to see in the last two verses, is, or, or starting in verse 16, is, or 17 rather, is that we are brought together in one body. So we have a sin barrier that not only separated Gentiles and Jews, but the sin barrier that separated Gentile and Jews now united in one body from God. And that's just the, his logical progression here. And so now he says that in reconciliation, this new body composed of Gentiles and Jews is reconciled to God. Then he gives us a, a an interesting verse in verse 17 referring to what Christ did but if you're not careful, you'll miss it, what he did before the cross. Verse 16 says that he is reconciling both to God in one new body. And then he gives what is basically a historical illustration. And in your English New King James, it will read, and he came and preached. In the English translation, it treats those as two finite verbs, but the first is a participle, and it should be translated after he came because it's an aorist participle, and an aorist participle will precede the action of the main verb here, which is preached, because it's an aorist tense verse, verb also. So the coming, which makes sense, I mean, when I teach this with, with people who don't know a lot of grammar and don't know a lot of Greek, and they say, well, how can you tell exactly how that action relates to one another? And it's a matter, because it's not something that is objectively indicated by some ending or prefix in the text. And I say, it's simple. You just have to think about what you're talking about. Did he come and preach simultaneously? When did he come? He came at birth, at the incarnation. He wasn't proclaiming anything when he came at birth. So first he had to come, and then he had to proclaim. I am preaching this morning. First I had to come here. Then following that, I am preaching. 
So when you see these words together uh, with a participle, you just think through, well, is it simultaneous or does one precede the other? And you have to take it logically. After he came, which refers to the incarnation, when Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, entered into human history through the virgin conception and birth, he came and added on, as we learn from Philippians 2, added on humanity to himself. And then as he matured, he went through the normal maturation process of any human. He had to learn. He had to be taught. He was not accessing his omniscience. So when he was born, he didn't come out of the womb teaching about the law or things of that nature. He had to go through the process of language acquisition. He had to go through the process of learning the Torah and all of the other things that we normally learn as we grow up. And then when he began his public ministry, he began to preach peace to who? To you who were afar off and to those who were near. Now let me ask you a question. When he is preaching to those who are far off and when Jesus was preaching to those who were near, was he preaching what Paul is talking about in this passage? No, not at all. Why? Because what he's talking about in this passage is what happens as a result of the cross and what began on the day of Pentecost when the church was given birth to, the beginning of the church, as a new organism that would be composed of Jew and Gentile. And initially in 33, when the church began on the day of Pentecost, it was only composed of Jews. It wasn't composed of Gentiles until Acts chapter 10. And so Jesus wasn't preaching the peace that Paul was preaching after the day of Pentecost and after Jew and Gentile were together in one body. So we need to stop and take a little bit of a look at this simply because there is, uh, you get conflicted information in in the commentaries and there'll be those in one uh, one particular commentary I'm always surprised nobody ever gets everything right and he makes the point here that this is this is Christ preaching through the apostles but that's not what the tenses of the verb saying that would entail a present tense verb that he is now preaching through uh, this piece to you, through the apostles. So the, uh, the verbs here indicate this is talking about a past tense. And so there is a preaching of peace to those who were at enmity with one another in the ministry of Christ. So I want to take a look at a couple of examples. First of all, I want you to turn, uh, turn with me to Matthew uh, well, let's go to John chapter 4 first. Go to John chapter 4. So what happens is that, let me give you an illustration. We have borders between nations. So we have a border between the U.S. and Canada, and that is a peaceful border. There's no, uh, you don't have a checkpoint Charlie there. You don't have barbed wire. You don't have uh, military presence with machine guns and other weapons. 
And so it is, there's peace between the two nations. But that border is different from the border that we have in the United States between, let's say, Texas and Louisiana or Texas and Oklahoma, uh, where you sometimes you don't even know that you've crossed from one state into the other, except maybe the pavement is a little less smooth if you leave Texas and go into, into another state. Um, but so, so what we're talking about in these examples is the peace that is being preached by Jesus before the cross, before the beginning of the church, that is like that peace that we have between the U.S. and Canada. The peace that we have after the cross is like the peace that we have between two states who are part of the same union. So let's look at John chapter 4. This is a situation where Jesus is going to the uh, take his disciples on a little training mission, and they're headed up to Galilee, and rather than taking the normal route, which would take them uh, east and across the Jordan, and then they would go up through the area that was then known as Perea, and then once they got up by the Sea of Galilee, then they would come back over into into the area uh, of Galilee and completely bypass the area in between. Remember, I don't didn't put a map up here, but in, in a map of Israel at that time, down in the south you had Judea, and in the north you had Galilee, and in between you had some area. Just think about it. It's a slow burn. So Samaria is a is a, a area you would avoid. The racism that Jews had for Samaritans was more intense than the hatred a Ku Klux Klan member would have for a black person in America. Just think about that. They would walk 50 miles out of their way to make the route up through Perea rather than take the direct route and walk from Jerusalem due north into Galilee. And they would do that every time. But Jesus takes his disciples this time through Samaria. And they were probably looking at each other, wondering why in the world Jesus was taking them this way because as observant Jews, they did not want to have anything to do with Samaritans. If you ask them, they might prefer to do something with a Gentile rather than a Samaritan. Their hatred of the uh, racial mixed mix of Samaria uh, was extremely intent. So verse 4 of John 4 says he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, which is now uh, Nablus, near the plot of ground where Jacob, that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. This was a well that had been dug by Jacob back around uh, probably 1800 to 1900 B.C. Today it is enclosed uh, in a church. And you can go there, as I have, and you can look down. The water is good, and it's a long way down to the water. You, the, the, the little attendant there will drop a coin or a stone or something into it, and you wait about five or six seconds before it hits, hits the water. So Jesus goes there. We're told in verse 7 that a woman of Samaria came to draw water. 
Now, she had to come a long way, and if the, the terrain there in, in Nablus is, is really uh, hilly, and she has to go up the hill and carry the – she's got the empty containers going up the hill. Then she has to come back down, and it's, it's uh, uh, very, very uncomfortable. So she comes and has a conversation with Jesus, and he begins to witness to her. And so she's questioning him as to why he's talk, even talking to her. And he says in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. And she kind of looks at him trying to figure out what he's talking about. And she says, Well, you don't have anything to draw with. The well's deep. Um, where do you get this living water? So he said uh, in verse 13, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, referring to the physical water. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become to him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So here is Jesus going to a Samaritan woman and giving her the gospel and offering her eternal life. And so as they go through the conversation, he focuses the attention on himself in verse 21 and says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Jerusalem worship the Father. And he goes on to say uh, in verse 23, But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. And then the woman says, she's starting to put things together. And in verse 25, she says, I know that Messiah is coming. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. So she trusts in Jesus as the Messiah. So this is one way in which Jesus is taking the gospel outside of the circle of Jews. Now let's turn to another example. The next two are both in Matthew and look at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Looking at verse, verse verses 5 to 13. This is when Jesus heals a centurion servant. I have heard this passage taught many times, but I did not recognize when I taught this in Matthew, I didn't recognize an element of this that I picked up on this morning after after what I've taught in the verses we're looking at in Ephesians uh, Ephesians 2. So Jesus goes to Capernaum. Now, many of you have been to Capernaum. It's a fishing village on the, sea, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there were, uh, the, it was a center there for where there were a number of Roman officials. So there's a centurion who is living there, and he pleads to, with Jesus, and he says, uh, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Now, the centurion is a Roman soldier. He's a Gentile and doesn't make an issue out of the ethnicity of the servant, whether the servant's Jewish or the servant is, is Roman, and it's not relevant. So Jesus says to him, I will come and heal him. What was the centurion's response? The centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. See, that's the thing I hadn't caught before. 
the centurion's a Gentile, a, a Jew would not go into a Gentile's home. The centurion understands that. So the centurion, this is what happens later with, um, with Paul, I mean, with Peter, and he will go after the Lord reveals to him that he's declared Gentiles clean. So Peter will not only invite the Gentile messengers from the centurion, um, from Cornelius, and, and Acts 10 into his house to spend the night, which never would have happened before. But he also goes and st- goes into Cornelius's house in, in Caesarea. But this centurion recognizes that this would not be right. He would, no Jew would want to come into his house. So he says, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And then he says, and I, in verse 11, And I say to you that many will come from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking, takes us right back to the Abrahamic covenant, where in the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham is told that through his seed, all the world will be blessed. So we see two things going on here. Jesus is giving, is healing the centurion servant and he talks about his faith. He is, uh, he is saved and he will be in the kingdom. Then let's turn to the next example, which is in Matthew 15. This is Jesus speaking to the Syrophoenician woman. Just turn over a few a few pages. Matthew 15, and we will look at this section starting in verse 21. Jesus went out from there. So he's been in Galilee, and now he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So he's crossing out of Israel, out of there into the area, what we would call today Lebanon. And he sees a Canaanite woman. So this is really making the point. He's going to this Unclean Gentile, bad enough, but she's a Canaanite. And behold, a woman of Canaan came came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. So she recognizes who he is by his by giving him this title, that he is the son of David. That's a messianic title. So she uses that title and it reveals that she is a she's a believer. She says, My daughter is severely demon possessed. Jesus doesn't say anything to her. Where's his, who's his ministry to? Remember, early on he sent his disciples out. He said, only go to the house of Judah and the house, house of uh, Israel. Here he's, gonna, he's making a point, though. He keeps silent. And his disciples say, why aren't you answering her? And he says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, then in verse 25, she says, Lord, help me. And then he answers. This is a really interesting passage here. He says, it's not good to take the children's bread. Who are the children? 
That's Israel. The bread represents God's blessing to Israel. He says it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Dogs were not nice little pets in the uh, ancient Near East. They were scavengers. They were dirty. They were unclean. They weren't the pet that you think of when you think of dogs. So this is throwing garbage to the uh, to the scavengers. So he's not talking very politely of this Canaanite woman. Today, those who are virtue signaling on the arrogant left would say, oh, he's a racist. Let's redefine racism then, because Jesus wasn't a racist. But he uses a very pejorative term here. So maybe that's not wrong. Maybe there's a context for it. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, this woman is sharp. Even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. So she gives him a rationale for why she should be blessed, even though his mission right now isn't to go to the, to the Gentiles. And Jesus then says to her, a woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. So here we have three examples where Jesus recognizes that not on the principle of the church age body of Christ where there's a unity between Jew and Gentile, but on the basis of Genesis 12.3 and the Abrahamic covenant, that there is a blessing that the Israelites were to be a blessing to those around them. Genesis 12.3 says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And if you weren't aware of it, right now there's a lot of discussion with Black Lives Matter, the organization, and Black Lives Matter has, uh, they had a couple of marches this last week, one in D.C., one in England, Both cases, they were chanting anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic chants. Black Lives Matter is inherently an anti-Semitic organization, which means that God will curse them. So nobody should use the phrase Black Lives Matter because that's just one of those shibboleths that people use to try to get you to win you over to their position. If you say our slogan then we're starting to win our argument. And if anyone validates Black Lives Matter, the organization, either actively or passively, they are involving themselves with anti-Semitism and and they are anti-Israel, and this will never end well. And then in the Abrahamic covenant, God went on to say, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's not making a division based on who can get to heaven and who can't. He's making a division between that group of people that he can work through and the rest of the the world, the Gentiles, who rebelled against him at the Tower of Babel. And so at this point, he's calling out Abraham and his descendants and he will work through them. And then he says, um, all the families of the earth shall be, uh, shall be blessed. Uh, so he is blessing. Uh, th- this is, I copied my notes into this, which I shouldn't have done. It's the blessing of Israel to the Gentiles. That's what's going on 
in in that passage in Genesis 12:3 that all of Israel is to bless all of the world. And so it's for, on that basis that Jesus is uh, is blessing these Gentiles during his his ministry. He came and he uh, the the text translates it uh, preaching, but the word is evangelizo, which means to proclaim good news. So it's it's different from um, making uh, of preaching, which is. Uh, an argument that uh, Harold Honer made in his commentary that he was preaching through the apostles and the prophets, and what is going on here is that he's proclaiming good news. And in these situations, you have three Gentiles who all become uh, believers as a result of his of his ministry, and so he is proclaiming. Uh, proclaiming the good news to those who are near, that is the Jews, we've already seen this language, and to those who are far, that is the Gentiles. And then we come to verse 18. Verse 18 we read, For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. The him is referring to Jesus Christ. For through Jesus... We both have access by one Spirit to the Father. This is one of eight passages in um, in Ephesians where Paul refers to the Trinity in either one verse or in a, a strung-together argument. For example, in uh, Ephesians 1, 4 through 14, he breaks it down in terms of the Father in the first four verses, and then to the Son, and then the Spirit's way of blessing us. And also the, there's a, a mention of all three members of the Trinity in uh, Ephesians 1.17 here in 2.18, and we'll see it again when we get to 2, uh, 2, 2.22. So here we see, for through him, that is through Christ, but through the cross and by means of his blood, we, meaning Jew and Gentile, both have access. This word for access is the Greek word prosagogain, which means freedom to enter or to have access to something. See, in, under the law, they did not have access to God. You, they, Gentiles could not go any further than the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go to the court of the women. They couldn't go into the holy place. They had no access to God. But now through Christ, who is our high priest, the veil has been torn in the temple. And so as our high priest, we have direct access to God the Father. This verb, prosagogain, is only used three times in the scripture. Another time that is used as a used in a significant way is in Romans 5, 1, and 2, the passage we read this morning in our scripture reading. Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 5, having already laid out justification in chapter 3 and 4. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, or because we have been justified by faith, we have peace. 
So what he is saying is once we trust in Christ as Savior, we receive the imputation of righteousness, we are declared just. At the instant of faith in Christ, we are justified, and because of justification, we have peace, present tense, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So here the access is into this grace, into this position of being recipients of God's saving grace, and as a result we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then this is connected to reconciliation in verses 10 and 11, where he says, if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So Christ's death on the cross reconciles us. Why? By removing this barrier that has existed. We are... uh, He goes on to say, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So there's an objective aspect to reconciliation, which is what Christ did on the cross, and then there's a subjective aspect of reconciliation when we trust Christ as our as our Savior. So it is through him, that is through Christ, we both have access, and then it is by one spirit. Now, there is a lot of ink spilled on trying to understand the relationship of these Greek prepositions. For through him, the through there is a dia plus the genitive, and it indicates, usually it's uh, described in English as a, as this is expressing means. But that's what you also use with by one spirit. And there are some that say, well, you can't have two, it would be redundant for both of them to express means. Except when you look at this passage, you have the use of the preposition in, which is the one used with by one spirit as instrumental uh, back in in verse 13, where we've been brought near by means of the blood of Christ, which is a reference to his death, and then in verse 16, it's through the cross. There it's dia. So they do express almost synonymous ideas. But if you're going to draw the line pretty thin, you're going to recognize that through him, through the cross, by his blood represents a more distant means, and by means of the Spirit is a more immediate means that focuses on our uh, immediate salvation and being brought into the body of Christ. So let's look at how this is used uh, through especially Acts and through a couple of other epistles to understand the significance of what the Holy Spirit is doing here when he says that we're brought near, or excuse me, when it says that we are given access by one Spirit. We go back to the beginning of Acts. Acts starts off where Luke ends. Luke writes both Acts and Luke, and so you have part one and part two. And Acts is going to start with the 
um, ascension of Christ and then take us through the early years of the church and the expansion of the church. And so at the very beginning of Acts chapter 1, Jesus is with his disciples, and he's giving them instructions. He reminds them of what John said when John the Baptist began his ministry back in Matthew 3.11. John said that he was baptizing with water, but there would be someone who would come after him that would baptize by means of the Spirit and by means of fire. Two different baptisms, the fires of judgment, is a judgment that comes in the future. Here he reminds them of, of John's baptism. He said, for John truly baptized, and he uses that preposition in here, E-N, baptized with water. Water's the means by which he made this identification with the kingdom. Uh, and the, his kingdom message to repent for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized. It's in the future. You will be in the future, John the Baptist said. You shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, that is, by means of the Holy Spirit. Same preposition that we have in Ephesians 2.18, that we have access by means of the Spirit. So the Spirit is seen as the instrument or the means by which we are, we're going to be brought into the body of Christ. And then in verse 8, Jesus said to the disciples, but you shall, still future tense, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the other parts of the earth. So in Acts 1.5, he's talking about the baptism by the Spirit. In Acts 1.8, he just says receiving power you, uh, by the Spirit, and he tells them to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes upon them. So the baptism by the Spirit and receiving power from the Spirit are talking about the same event that will take place, and that will take place on the day of Pentecost in the beginning of Acts. So now turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we will look at verse 4 and a couple of other passages in Acts 2. We have to catch this progression that's taking place. So in Acts 1, Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to, you will be baptized by the Spirit, as John the Baptist said. Uh, the Spirit will come on you. Uh, you will uh, receive power. And then we see that fulfilled in Acts, in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages or in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. The word there for filled is not the word used in Ephesians 5.18 for the believers filling today. That's a different verb. That's play, oh, this has been play me, which is almost always immediately followed by some sort of speaking. Okay, it was distinctive at that time in history, not today. They were all filled with, by the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now turn down to verse 30, uh, 33. Verse 33 we read, Therefore being exalted to the right... This is Peter speaking. Peter is giving his sermon then on the day of Pentecost, and he's talking about the uh, ascension of Christ. It says, Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God... 
and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So Peter looks at what happened that morning when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and they spoke in languages they had not previously learned as the fulfillment of the promise Jesus had made about the coming of the Spirit in Acts 1-5 and in Acts 1-8. So that connects the dots for us. What, hap- what Jesus promised in Acts 1-8 is what happened in Acts 2-4, and Peter identifies it as such in Acts 2-33. Now turn over three or four more pages to Acts chapter 8, and we'll see another situation. This is now in Samaria. We started off with the first example with uh, the woman at the well in Samaria. And so now we have another situation in Acts chapter 8 where uh, Philip has been going and giving them, uh, giving them the gospel. Look at verse 15. Uh, we'll start with 14 to get the context. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, that is, they became believers, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So this is the situation in Acts 15. The apostles pray and the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. Now, why did God not give them the Holy Spirit when they believed? There are several reasons, but the primary one is, remember the Samaritans were a schism. Not only were they sort of a, uh, a mongrel ethnicity, they're not pure, purely Jewish, but they were, they were also a, a sect that had split off from the Jews they only accepted as scripture the Pentateuch. They had their own temple on uh, Mount Gerizim, and that is where they worshipped. They worshipped their own way, and they would not go to Jerusalem and would not go to the temple in Jerusalem. So they were this uh, schismatic sect. So Peter and John go, and as a result of their pr- prayer, laying on of hands, they received the Holy Spirit. What this shows is that both groups were united by the apostles. If the Samaritans had received the Holy Spirit without the connection to uh, the apostles in Jerusalem, then they could have continued to be a separationist group, separatists. But by receiving the Holy Spirit at the hands of the apostles from Jerusalem, they are unified uh, in the same group of believers as, as the Samaritans. Now, let's go to the passage I've alluded to twice before, and that is in Acts chapter 10. This is when Peter has his vision. There is, um, he's given this vision of a tablecloth that comes down. It has all these unclean animals on it. Uh, three times it comes down. Each time Peter says, Oh Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean or done anything unclean. And God says, Rise, kill, and eat. And finally, after the third time, uh, Peter gets the point and he hears, uh, is told from heaven 
What God has cleansed, you must not call common or unclean. So this is the point because there's these already these messengers from Cornelius are on the way to ask Peter to come to Caesarea. If God had not given him this revelation, he would have said, oh, there's separation between Jew and Gentile. I can't go into a Gentile's home. I can't eat with the Gentile. They're unclean. I would become unclean. And so God gives him this vision to say, basically in terms of what Paul says in Ephesians 2, the barrier is down. There's no problem. It's okay to go with them. So uh, when the men come, they then spend the night with Peter, and the next day they head up to Caesarea by the sea. The key verses here are verse 44 and 45. While Peter was still speaking these words, when he comes to the household of Cornelius and begins to explain the gospel, while he is speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those who went with him, those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, that means all of them, they were all just floored, they just couldn't believe it, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Now that last word is important because it says, it tells us that the event in Acts 10 45 is connected to what happened in Acts chapter 2. And it, by way of application, also Acts chapter 8. So all of this is happening in this, with the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Then in Acts 11, as Peter is telling the other apostles in Jerusalem what happened, he says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them as upon us at the beginning. So it's the same thing. What the apostles experienced in Acts 2 is the same thing that uh, the Gentiles experienced in Acts 11. And then he says, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized by the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus. I started this with Jesus saying, Remember what John said? I'm going to leave, but you stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes with power. Then the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2. It's the baptism by the Spirit. Then we see the Holy Spirit coming to the Samaritan believers in Acts chapter 8. And then it's all tied together in Acts 10 and 11 that it's all the same thing. So all of these groups are now united by the Holy Spirit. So then when we go to uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13... Paul says, for by means of one spirit, we were all baptized or identified into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we've all been made to drink into one spirit. So this is the access that Paul is talking about. We have access by God to God by one spirit. It's by this baptism by the Holy Spirit And every time we see this language, whether Jew or Greek, it's emphasizing what Paul's teaching in Ephesians 2, uh, 14 through 18, that we are both one in one new body now. And in Galatians 3, 26 to 28, uh, Paul also speaks of this. He doesn't use the word baptism. Yeah, he does use the word baptism in 27 that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So that is 
important language. Baptism into Christ, you put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So this unity that is brought about in that Paul talks about in Ephesians eradicates racial distinctions for every believer. We are all united as one in the body of Christ, and this is the new man that we have put on. As I pointed out uh, last time, that this language that is used in uh, verse 15 is that he created in himself one new man from the two. That new man, as I pointed out last time, is the body of Christ. So next time we'll come to the next section, starting in verse 19, talking about this new entity that we're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens in the household of God and what is the household of God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study your word, to be reminded of who we are as Gentiles, that we have been brought together with the Jews in one body, united in one body, and that whatever a person's ethnicity, that is irrelevant in the body of Christ, and that we should learn to uh, work together with other believers on the basis of the unity of faith, as Paul will, will explain in the next chapter. Sadly, there's little unity of faith today because there's so much apostasy. Father, we're thankful that we have this new identity in Christ and that we have been given a new position, an elevated position as members of the body of Christ, which indeed is going to be the bride of Christ and that you have made us uh, special and unique. Now, Father, we pray that anyone who's listening to this message, if they've never trusted in Christ as Savior, would understand that, that becoming a Christian is not a matter of joining a church. It's not a matter of giving money or doing anything. It is simply a matter of trusting in what Christ did on the cross trusting in him alone, only trust, faith alone, and only Christ, Christ alone. That is the gospel. It's good news that we don't have to do anything. We can't do anything. If we try to do anything, it messes up everything else. All we can do is trust in Christ because he did it all. Father, we pray that you would make this very clear to those who are listening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.